I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello. Welcome to another episode of Ancient Office Hours by the Ozymandias Project. Trireme Transit is now boarding for all new and returning passengers. Now departing, present ponderings. Next stop is... Ancient Office Hours, at a library lost in the sands of time. Hey everyone, Happy New Year and welcome to episode 56 of Ancient Office Hours. In the first episode of 2023, I'm excited to present this great chat with Dr. Benjamin Anderson, a professor of classics and history of art at Cornell University. Dr. Anderson's research focuses on three areas, late antique and Byzantine art and architecture, the urban history of Constantinople, and the history of archaeology. We chatted about his decision process for picking an era and culture to specialize in, his thoughts on whether the study of archaeology is more the study of history or material culture, and whether all Byzantinists are obsessed with Hagia Sophia. I was particularly pleased and excited to chat about Hagia Sophia since, at the time of the recording, I had just finished writing my master's thesis on the building. I don't often get to nerd out with Byzantinists, so this conversation was a super real treat. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you like what you hear, please give us a five-star rating and review us on Apple or Spotify. You can also subscribe to our Patreon, as this will allow us to reach more people and make more exciting ancient world content. Enjoy! So thank you for joining me on the podcast this morning, evening, afternoon, whatever it is. I just wanted to start off and ask you, how did you get into art history, classics, basically the ancient world? Well, it's a great question. Um, It's a big question, of course, and it happened in stages. So I don't have one aha moment um, when I converted to any one of these uh, pursuits, but certainly there are childhood roots. I have a really strong memory of a copy of Dallaire's Greek mythology that I think my grandparents gave to me when I was really young, and it was illustrated, so I think I could look at it even before I could necessarily read it. And the stories made a big impact on me in that particular version, as they're told, which is very kind of, you know, coherent and synthetic. That's one of these attempts to make a grand story out of the little scraps and bits that we have of ancient mythology. So it was quite compelling. And I remember then also from a pretty early age, I was raised Catholic, 
being slightly confused by the fact that there were all of these gods in whom apparently nobody or not many people believed anymore, and that somehow it was simultaneously a part of the same culture around me as this new system, which wasn't even that new anymore. So already uh, early on, I had some interest in this question that's become that's always remained uh, a topic of interest for me about the transition from what we call the ancient world to the medieval, from paganism to Christianity, however you want to talk about that. That was present to me from pretty early on and a source of interest and some puzzlement. And I think I could also probably attribute to my grandparents as well the history, uh, the interest in art history, because there's another book that I remember so I grew up in Maine. Yeah, so these are all images uh, from my parents' house of uh, uh, one shelf of books that were mine in their, in their living room. And there was also a book there that was a history of world art that was published by Phaedon. It's also probably got to be about like 79 or 80 or something like that, that it was published. And it was probably about 200 pages with lots and lots of illustrations. And I remember again, leafing through that and of course reading the text at a certain point but being as engaged by the illustrations as anything else and similar questions came up there I guess about you know art changes over time and even in a really rapid overview like that you can see that as a kid and you start to wonder well why why do people represent people and landscapes and animals and the other kinds of things that get into art in different ways, um, in different times and places, and, and how do these things change? And I'd like to think that there too, there was also some kind of early interest in this ancient medieval transition, because that's one of those really noticeable uh, instances where we can see that things are changing in front of our eyes, that there's a different set of expectations for what a work of art or what a representation should do. So those were some really early, I mean, I was fortunate, long story short, to grow up in a in a house with some books, and they were books that, that spoke to me pretty early on. Another one that I'd mentioned also from pretty early on was a, there was a PBS documentary series called The Day the World Changed that was hosted by a historian of science a TV host named James Burke, and it was about the history of science, and it was very broad and its approach to the subject. But I remember being fascinated by watching it multiple times when it aired on PBS. And at some point, then my parents bought the companion volume for me. And that was also a very well-illustrated volume. And it's the most uncanny or surprising of these early reminiscences in the sense that several years ago, I wrote a book. It was the book that was based on my dissertation called Cosmos and Community in Early Medieval Art. And I chose in collaboration with my editors at Yale University Press one image to go on the cover, which is an image of a solar diagram from a manuscript that was produced uh, in Constantinople in the early Middle Ages. And, you know, I'd been working on it for some time. I'd looked at the manuscript in the Vatican. And so I had a, a whole set of ideas about it and I discussed it at length in the book. But several years after the book was published, I went home and visited my parents and they had a stack of books for me that they wanted me to take off their hands, basically asked me if I still wanted them. And I said, I did. And one of them was this, uh, this companion volume by James Burke to The Day the Universe Changed. And I realized that this diagram that ended up on the cover of, of my own book had been illustrated there. 
already. So I must have seen it when I was like five or six for the first time and then seen it a number of times afterwards. I don't have any specific memories tied to it, but I remember looking at that book all the time. So it planted some kind of seed that later on unconsciously I came back to and uh, devoted a lot more attention to that uh, image in particular. So that's the really early version of the story. And I think the more recent version is probably a little bit more predictable in the sense that I continue to be interested in these things in school. I was fortunate to have really great professors in undergraduate and in graduate school, really great kinds of support structures and friends and all kinds of different ways that I was able to branch out and explore these topics from different angles. But there is something really basic there about an early interest in art, in myth, and in historical change, or these periods in which we see one approach or one style fading and another rising to prominence. That's always been, I think, at the core of my fascination in these fields of study. No, that's a fascinating story. And I, you're definitely not the first person who discovered Dodelaire's young, and that's kind of the key that got them into it. I, it's, it's one of those very formative books, I think, for most classicists, I find. And so obviously the worlds of art and images is very, very vast, as I myself know. I minored in art history, and I found it really hard to sort of pick where I wanted to go because there were so many things to be interested. So when you were confronted with the exact same thing, how did you go about figuring out, okay, well, I guess I'll do just this period or this culture? Well, that's a great question. Um, and that's changed for me over time. So when I, when I went to college, I went to Williams College, which has a great museum and is known for this art history program. And they also have a, a master's in art history. So it's been a focus there for quite some time. And I knew when I went to Williams that I wanted to study art history, that I wanted to major in art history. It was one of the reasons I'd chosen to go there. And initially, I was most interested in high modernism. So at that point, when I was 18, 19 years old, uh, it was... European, but especially American painting of the mid 20th century, abstract expressionism, pop, all of these kinds of things, which I still love and I still find totally fascinating. Um, but there was obviously a moment there where my attention shifted. And that was really because of um, some coursework, uh, one course in particular, I'd say, that I had in college with a professor named Bill Tronzo, who was at Williams at that time as a medievalist and a Byzantinist, uh, taught a course on the Arena Chapel and Giotto's paintings in the Arena Chapel in Padua, which I took because I needed something to fulfill a distributional requirement. <laughs> but it did activate, again, this set of much earlier interests about the representation of narrative. So that's an interesting cycle for a number of different reasons of frescoes in the interior of that chapel. But Part of what's interesting is that it represents the apocryphal story of the life of the Virgin Mary, sort of before the story that's relayed in the Gospels begins. And so that posed an interesting set of questions. That was what I focused on in the paper that I wrote for that class. That started to pull me back. And around the same time, I opted to take a class that didn't count towards any of my majors. I was an art and English major. But this was, of course in the religion department from a woman who just come there named Denise Buell. I think she still teaches at Williams, really brilliant and dynamic scholar, great teacher. And that was a course on early Christianity. 
And it was the story of early Christianity in part through patristic authors, but also in part through much less traditional sources of evidence. She was really interested in looking at you know, various avenues of religious thought that didn't get institutionalized, that we just have uh, sort of a more oblique view of from the sources. And so I found it all completely fascinating. And I think it was probably the same year, if not the same semester, that I had those two courses simultaneously. And I thought to myself, well, you know, this is really interesting. <laughs> and it was sort of reactivated a whole set of questions about classical antiquity, about Christianity, about how they related to each other and art as being one particular field within which it was possible to pose those questions in ways in which the answers wouldn't necessarily be obvious, right? So that was really the uh, germ of a notion to focus specifically on what I'm saying here is, is still a fairly broad chronology that I'm adumbrating from, I don't know, classical antiquity up until the late Middle Ages. And there's a sense in which that remains, you know, my preferred periodization. I don't like to slice things too thinly. And one of the things that's especially interest to me, of special interest to me, is how people in different times and places perceive art that was made much earlier in various modes that aren't necessarily uh, scholarly or not scholarship in the way that we practice it now. So I'm very interested, for example, in ways in which ancient sculpture that was on display in medieval Constantinople was perceived by those people who viewed it. So that's one way to focus on a particular set of documents but in doing so, to take a much more diachronic approach where you're not limiting yourself entirely um, to one century, you know, one, uh, even a couple few centuries span, but you're really trying to get a handle instead on threads that run throughout centuries and throughout eras that allow you to, I don't know, take a much more capacious chronological approach. In terms of, you know, geography, it's so hard to, to say. I mean, I, there's so many different regions of the world that I would love to be able to devote more time to and to study more closely, beginning with my own, the whole history of, you know, where I grew up, you know, the sort of northeastern United States from its indigenous history to the period of colonization and into the present day is one that remains totally fascinating to me. How did I end up landing on the Mediterranean? That really, I think, has to do with teachers that I had in college, that there was some kind of pre-existing interest in my own cultural formation also, you know, because of these sorts of things that were in the air when I was growing up. And that then I just happened to have the good fortune to have really great teachers in those particular areas, especially focusing on the Mediterranean, I'd say, when I was in in college. And so that has just stuck as my primary uh, focus. So there's a lot of accident in there, and there's a bit of biography in there, but there's also maybe a set of intellectual questions that are of interest about transition and the ways in which people perceive historical change through art, which fortunately we're really able to say a lot about on the basis of both the textual and the visual material records from the Mediterranean, from antiquity through the Middle Ages and up until the present day. That's a region that just, um, that we have really rich dossiers to work with and surprising dossiers. There's always something new. There's always something unexpected in working on that 
region, and it's a, a then a region that I discovered. I didn't travel at all as a kid. You know, I never left North America when I was a kid. Um, it wasn't until you know, my senior year of college that I left North America, and that was for a winter study trip, a January term trip to uh, Jordan and Damascus, uh, Jordan and Syria. So this, and with quite a bit of time in both in Damascus and Aleppo, as well as in Amman. Yeah, so that was my first exposure to the region that you know I've continued to study, and it was completely mind blowing. Just yeah, to land in in 1998, as I said, never really having left. A, a very circumscribed geography, and uh, to be introduced by wonderful guides and um, professors to this incredibly rich cultural landscape. Um, uh, I mean, I was hooked basically from that point on. It's fascinating, and I am marveling at your good fortune to go to these places before any of the stuff that's happened because I don't think young people are going to be able to go anytime soon. And, you know, who knows what's left there? So, one, I congratulate you on being able to go at a time where there was more mm -hmm. and also sort of your description of how you got into art history and, and focusing on periods brought up a, a different sort of question that I was having in a discussion with a, with a friend of mine who just started an art history and archaeology program. It's more archaeology than art history, but I remember there was some discussion about, well, is archaeology more of a history or a material culture so is it is it like art history what is it and so as someone who focuses on art history do you consider yourself an expert in material culture because that's what it is or is it sort of gray yeah, that's a great great question so first off just to your, your your previous point it's true that I have had incredibly good fortune in traveling and in traveling at a time when it was somewhat less restricted than it is at present and especially much less than it was for the past few years during the the pandemic at the same time I would say of those two countries that I visited Jordan and Syria uh, in 1998 Jordan is still to my knowledge very safe to travel to and and very rewarding um, for the archaeologically uh, interested traveler and I have hopes that that will become the case again um, for Syria in the future because that was a, a country that really meant a lot to me I went, ended up going back there again when I was uh, in graduate school uh, but you're right no there was and I've been conscious of this recently in dealing with you know uh, advising students who are pursuing advanced research on these topics now that the geography that I had access to in the 90s and early 2000s, it was very different from the sort of geography of travel today. So that's a great question about the, the competency of the art historian or the uh, distinction between archaeology and, and art history, how these things relate to each other. I think it's useful to hold them separate heuristically, even if there is a huge amount of overlap and the day-to-day -day study of, and by them, I mean art history and archaeology as being two distinct fields of study. They overlap tremendously. They overlap, overlap especially in uh, the Mediterranean because there is a sense in which the archaeology of the ancient Mediterranean in particular developed directly out of what we now think of as, as art history. So the overlap is a little bit fuzzier there than it may be in other disciplines or in other um, regions. And nevertheless, I always have kind of a sense, I do both art history and archeology span and they seem to me to be different things. 
even if they can take the same object of analysis. Art history for me is the questions that I'm posing when I'm doing art history really have to do with perception or with interpretation. That's to say the bigger questions belong to a set of ultimately psychological questions about the way in which we take in the world around us and process our perceptions, our sense perceptions, and the way in which we then try to relay them to other people in meaningful ways. Whereas when I'm doing archaeology, I think that this, the primary sets of questions that I'm posing are about society. They're about social organization. They are about the ways in which institutions function, about the ways in which states function, um, other kinds of communities, neighborhoods, for example. It, for me, there's in the same sense in which you can draw a distinction between anthropology and sociology, which is kind of a distinction of scales. So anthropology is sort of about the individual, the lifetime, a sort of a shorter time span and a smaller social scale. Sociology tends to be about much longer term change, about much larger collectives. I think there's a way in which art history and archaeology are similarly arrayed, that art history ends up being a little bit more about the individual, this kind of interface between the individual and the world. And archaeology ends up being a little bit more about the interface between individuals and other individuals and the ways in which the sort of social dynamics take shape. And you can ask the same question uh, that, you know, both of those questions about the same objects, but you would end up with a sort of different research projects potentially on the basis of those. So I'll give you an example. I worked in the summers uh, with a colleague of mine, Jordan Pickett, who's a professor of classics at uh, University of Georgia. Uh, we worked together on a small project at Sardis, which is under the umbrella of a much uh, larger and longer term uh, archaeological uh, exploration of uh, Sardis, which has been running since the 1950s, a very large um, uh, excavation project. So it, under the umbrella and under the aegis of that larger project, we've been studying the medieval fortifications on the Acropolis at Sardis which are a really impressive set of constructions from some time in the early Middle Ages. And we'd like to be able to be more precise about the date, but for now we can just say broadly sixth to ninth century, somewhere in that span. And they're incredibly interesting and incredibly well built and entirely built from spoils that have been carted up from the Roman city below at great effort and it would, must have been an extraordinary expenditure, both, both of resources and of labor. So on the one hand, when you arrive, uh, you walk up this fairly steep path in the foothills of Bozda, of Mount Tmolus uh, in central Turkey, or really Western Turkey, you're first presented with this extraordinary aesthetic impression, which is of these walls kind of looming out over a ridge in fact, they're quite precarious. It looks like they could tip over at any point, although we have photos already from the um, early 20th century where they're in exactly the same position in relation to the uh, hillside as they are today. And I mean, this is part of their interest. And then when you get closer, you realize that what looks like this incredibly homogeneous 
masonry construction is in fact entirely cobbled together with pieces of different buildings. So it's entirely heterogeneous in terms of the building material. So first, there's a whole set of what are for me fundamentally art historical questions that come up about the impression that this was meant to make, the aesthetics of spolia, for example. Are you supposed to recognize that heterogeneity? Are you not supposed to recognize that heterogeneity? These are art historical questions. But when you start to dig into the um, logistics behind the construction of this a little bit more, and you ask yourself, first of all, what does it mean to sponsor what must have been a collective effort to dismantle structures in the lower city and to cart them up a very steep hillside and to create something entirely new out of them at a site that was previously uninhabited? This raises a whole set, set of questions about social change, about politics. Was this labor coerced? Was it labor freely volunteered? And those are, to my mind, basically archaeological questions. And you're not really going to get to the essence of the Acropolis at Sardis if you don't kind of pursue both of those strands of inquiry simultaneously, because obviously part of the intended message must have something to do with these social changes that were happening at the same time. But if it's possible to kind of separate them out, at the very least heuristically, as being questions about two different domains, then I think it's possible to produce an even richer account of that overlap of the interplay between them. That's so interesting. And just based on your opinion and your answer, which I find very fascinating. Are these two subjects that they are so closely related and so similar that it's right that we do and we should continue to put them together? Or should we, is there an argument that we can make to maybe separate them but still have them work sort of in an interdisciplinary manner? They'll always work together. I don't think that it's necessary for every individual who starts to engage with this material to do both, right? I think that you can be a really like valuable member of the scholarly community if you're just doing art history and you're quite convinced that you have really very little interest in archaeology, you're happy for somebody else to work on that. And vice versa, I think that you can make wonderful contributions if you know your primary focus is on archaeology and you have a sort of awareness of what comes from art history, but you don't feel any need to contribute directly to that field of research yourself, right? So I think that the, the overlap will always come institutionally. Like it's wonderful when you have projects, collaborative projects, where people who are really more art historians or more archaeologists or more historians or more literary scholars are working together on a shared set of questions. I think that's a really good model for pursuing knowledge about the ancient world. And of course, also in terms of, you know, institutions of education, the universities or museums or research centers that bring together people who aren't necessarily um, committed to working on a specific project together, but who have the opportunity to exchange viewpoints and to exchange expertise um, from these different kinds of disciplinary points of view. So, you know, I think that most of us who are involved in the study of uh, the ancient world have one or two or three of these uh, different kind of uh, competencies that we cultivate and we do it variably, right? You know, my skill as a 
scholar of literature is much less cultivated than my skill as a, a scholar of art, although it's a subject that I find fascinating and I always enjoy reading about. So, you know, you focus variably on these different fields, but nobody can be the expert who covers all of these things simultaneously. So it ultimately has to be a question of scholars with different competencies working together to gain a kind of shared understanding of uh, common questions. I agree. I think that's, there are two subjects that you really can't sort of break apart. I mean, when I think back to my experience in my department at Mizzou, it was one department together. It was like art history and it was archaeology. And they were like, well, they're together for better, for worse. And I was like, that's great. It's fine. But what I noticed that was interesting was that in speaking with my archaeologist friends while I was very much into the art history aspect I wasn't so much into the archaeology aspect so I didn't really take a lot of archaeology classes but when talking with my friends who were in that side they would always tell me things like oh well you know it's very expensive to go abroad to go Mm. on an excavation it's very hard to get grant money. You're always writing and begging people to give you money to go excavate abroad in the sake of archaeology. And I'm curious, is it because they're often in the same department, does that make mm. it harder for the primarily art history people to also get funding? Or do you think it's a bit easier if you say, well, I- I'm not an archaeologist, so I'm not asking for that. I'm I'm art history. Is Or does that not even really make a difference to the higher-ups? Yeah, that's a super interesting question. And I think that you're right that in terms of the sort of, I mean, there's also lots of larger scale collaborative projects that are done in art history, for example, around materials analysis or conservation, heritage studies projects also often, and um, you know, preservation projects can have this kind of more resource intensive collaborative um, aspect to them. But broadly speaking, I think you're right that a project in art history is often a library project, uh, whether that's working from published secondary literature at your home institution and through interlibrary loan or traveling to uh, unpublished archives. That's very often individual travel. And of course, you will need to go in to visit museums and to uh, visit monuments and to inspect them at first hand. But the kind of study that an art historian might undertake of a site or a building can usually be undertaken individually or in a small group in comparison to these very large groups of individuals who have to come together to make a really large scale uh, archaeological project work. And there's lots of fuzzy sort of in-between ground there, right? So an archaeological project can also mean very different things. And an archaeological project can be a really big excavation that's been going on for decades, that has a whole bunch of infrastructure, that has housing, that has its own library and equipment and so on and so forth. And so this is a really daunting fundraising challenge, basically, to um, bring something like that together. Uh, But of course, doing archaeology can also mean sort of survey and especially extensive survey, um, if you're not actually collecting 
mapping ceramics, but if you're just identifying sites and monuments within a particular region, that can be undertaken with a really small team. It can be one or two people. I have friends who, uh, you know, have executed archaeological projects that were primarily staffed by themselves and their parents, for example. And that, of course, is, is going to be survey. That's not going to be excavation. But that's becoming um, really as uh, common a model for an archaeological project today as the sort of large-scale excavation. I don't think that it produces tension in departments necessarily, or not that I've perceived, at least in my experience. I think that there's a pretty broad understanding about the differences of those scales, and I'm not sure that art historians and archaeologists are necessarily competing over the same resources, if that makes sense. Archaeological projects tend to be funded by different institutions than those that fund art historical projects. So if you think of like um, Winter Gren or the NSF or some of the big uh, funding organizations for archaeology that art historians would probably never apply to. And then similarly, I don't know, the big research centers in the U.S. for art history are at the National Gallery in D.C., uh, the Getty in Los Angeles, uh, the Clark in Massachusetts. There's a few more of these, but they're not funding archaeological research. So uh, it tends to institutionally, in this sense, live in two different worlds, also in terms of the funding. So I don't, I've never experienced or noticed the sort of resentment that that you're intuiting all that which isn't to say that it doesn't exist but it hasn't been a part of my own experience it's good if it's not because i would i would hope that it isn't but since i wasn't really super involved that those weren't my primary departments i obviously only got it sort of second hand but i thought it would be interesting to see whether these basically are subjects and areas where you would be competing for the same thing or if they are separate, which if they're separate, that's great. So you're not going to basically make people start a cat fight over the same pot of money, which you don't want. I think that's even better that they're not coming from the same place. That's actually really good to hear. I'm, I'm very glad that, that I wasn't proven wrong. Okay, so I want to turn a little bit to your interest in Byzantine art. It is a subject that I didn't really find or think that I would be super invested in until pretty much I was about to graduate from undergrad and then not going on in classics for a master's or PhD. I didn't really think it would come into my life. And then lo and behold, I get into a modern political science program and here I am writing about Byzantine iconography. Life is funny. But in terms of your interest, was it primarily the religious aspect or the just purely artistic? Because I know that Islamic art, Byzantine art is made up of such different elements. I mean, there is the, the religious element, but then there's also the more like pictorial, a lot of flowers and I don't want to say like non-religious, but they are kind of non-religious elements. So was it a specific thing that you got interested in or did you just like it all as a whole? Yeah, that's a great question. My interest in Byzantine comes, of course, from the kinds of things that I was talking about in answer to your first question. So this really early interest in classical antiquity, Christianity, how these two things relate to each other, how they're in conflict. And then when I was in college, and as I was thinking about going on to graduate school, that 
narrowed in focus a little bit to what we call late antiquity. And sometimes people parse off late antiquity from Byzantium, or sometimes people put them in the same era, late antique and Byzantine. And so there's overlapping chronologies for describing these things. But my interest at the beginning was definitely in the earlier period. And within that framework, although some of my initial question had to do with the relationship of Christianity to previous forms of thought and religious observance, as well as coexisting forms of thought and religious observance, I was not necessarily focusing on religious art. I'd say, in fact, that I've not, by and large, in my scholarship on Byzantine art, focused exclusively or even maybe primarily on religious art, that I've been equally interested in scientific illustration, which was the topic of my book, my dissertation, and then of my book. And in that case, I was using astronomical imagery as a means to, in fact, compare Byzantium to other contemporary successors to the Roman Empire, uh, in particular, early Islamic and uh, Carolingian states as they're taking form and producing very ambitious monuments with the same kind of imagery. This was part of the shared inheritance, despite various kinds of religious and cultural development that had led in different directions, you have nevertheless this uh, shared heritage, which turns out to be precisely classical art. So that wanting to undertake that kind of comparison drew me away from primarily religious material into something that was more part of the shared intellectual or elite culture of the ancient Mediterranean that's really maintained into the early Middle Ages. And similarly, my interest in in architecture and in urbanism, we know Byzantine cities very well through their churches. Uh, very often, the church is the primary surviving monument of a Byzantine period of occupation at a particular site. And it's incredibly fascinating material. I'm fascinated by the Byzantine church in all of its periods and in the ways in which it changes. But I've not written very much about that. I've tried often to go outside of the churches, as it were, and to try to understand something about the broader urban landscapes in particular that they were involved in. And so that's meant writing studies about uh, clocks in Constantinople, about public clocks. That's a different kind of monument that's being cultivated in the early Middle Ages about the ways in which people are looking at the ancient statues that are out in the streets, about the ways in which uh, in a neighborhood in Constantinople, for example, uh, baths and porticos can be as important as areas for people to congregate as the churches are when we have the sources that allow us to access that sort of level of urban experience. So it's a bit of a paradox in that sense that I would say that my initial interest had everything to do with religion and with religious change in particular, but in the ways in which I've pursued research in these areas, I've often been drawn away from the exclusively religious and to other aspects of culture and society. How interesting. And you mentioning like astronomical elements and clocks and, and similar things 
I have had the pleasure of traveling to Prague this summer to visit a classmate of mine. And I saw the astrological clock, the very famous one in their sort of main square. So, I mean, I know it's, it's, I think that one's much later. Is that closer to the kind of clocks you're interested in? Or is that actually way too late? That's a great question. I haven't been to Prague. So everything that I know about that clock was from an article that I read about a decade ago by a colleague at the University of Virginia, Eric Ramirez-Weaver, who wrote um, an article in Gesta about that clock. So I have a very fuzzy recollection of it. However, yes, broadly speaking, these public clocks that were on display, let's say, in Damascus, in Constantinople, and other early medieval capitals, often had an astronomical element to them. So they incorporated in some fashion the signs of the zodiac, for example. We hear about this in relation to some of the clocks in Constantinople, and we see it in uh, some of the Islamic illustrations, in particular from this book by a scholar named Al-Jazari, which is a book of uh, mechanical devices that includes a clock with the signs of the uh, zodiac. So they're not as elaborate in their gearing, right? If I remember correctly, that astronomical clock in Prague is a really high-tech piece of engineering, in particular in terms of its sort of elaborate gearing mechanisms. And that's not something that was available, that sort of level of metalworking, I think, that's necessary to manufacture those gears. So most of the clocks that we're talking about, monumental clocks in the early Middle Ages, are hydraulic. They're being run by uh, using water as a means to exert a sort of a, a, a consistent pressure drives then uh, the mechanism. So it's technologically different, but that general notion that if you have a clock, you're not just measuring time, you're also in some sense describing the motion of the universe is, I think, shared by all of these monuments. It stands to reason that you would want your clock or expect your clock to be as astronomical or astrological as it can possibly be. Yeah, I I didn't know anything about the clock either until I was standing in the square, sort of waiting for something to happen with a crowd of people. So I was kind of getting really bored if I was being honest. I was like, okay, this is great. We're just standing here. What's going on? So that's when my friend had to then illuminate me and say, ah, well, this is the clock. I know it doesn't look like much, but she says, you know, on the hour, it kind of opens up and you see the patron saints of the Czech Republic. And she said, it's it's really like a very short show that lasts maybe 30 seconds, but she said it's worth seeing. So we stayed and, and it was really cute. You know, I was like, okay, it's like 20, 30 seconds, very, very quickly. If you blink, you'll miss it. But it was very, very cute. And I'm very glad that I had the experience. So I can say, I saw the astronomical clock in Prague um, at the top of the hour. So, but in terms of your interest in sort of the church and religious architecture in Constantinople, I have to ask, and please, if this is wrong, because I think this is the assumption that non-Byzantinists gets, which is for obvious reasons, but it's that everyone who does Byzantine history therefore must be obsessed with everything about the Hagia Sophia. And that's all everyone wants to study. So please illuminate us. Is this in fact true or is that a complete lie? It just happens to be the most famous building that, yes, has just had the most written about it because also of its political history. 
I can't speak for everybody, and I can't speak for all Byzantinists, but I am certainly obsessed with Hagia Sophia, and so I am myself guilty of that. It's a fascinating building for all of the reasons that you mentioned. It's a pretty unique building, and so it's one of the interesting facts about Byzantine architecture is that there are very few attempts to replicate Hagia Sophia after it's built in the 6th century. So later Byzantine architecture doesn't really develop in terms of a whole bunch of responses to Hagia Sophia. It goes off in a different direction. So that later responses to and emulations of Hagia Sophia tend to be from outside of the Byzantine Empire, Venice and Rus and other sorts of regions. Um, and of course, also after the end of the Byzantine Empire. So the architecture of classical Ottoman centuries, say the 16th century and Sinan's work is obviously directly engaged with Hagia Sophia. So there's a sense in which when you're studying Hagia Sophia, it's not representative of, it can't really stand for Byzantine architecture writ large. It's instead this extraordinary exception. And I think the Byzantines knew that already. Uh, we have these texts from the 9th and 10th centuries that are semi-historical, semi-legendary, that are attempting to tell the story of the narrative of the construction of Hagia Sophia. So there were already questions that people were posing at that time about the difference between Hagia Sophia and the other kinds of churches that existed in the world around them and attempting to come up with explanations for this sort of extraordinary or unique aspect of Hagia Sophia. It certainly took my breath away the first time that I walked into it. And I think it was really the interior experience for me that was unlike anything else that I had ever seen up to that point. I want to say I first went to Istanbul in 2002 or 2003, so a little bit over 20 years ago. And of course, the very first thing that I did as soon as I was off the plane and it dropped my bags off at the hostel was to go and to uh, buy a ticket and to walk into Hagia Sophia. And you don't forget that first experience of entering that space. It is uh, activates a kind of sensory or almost haptic register of experience that's very unusual, I think, for architecture. And so that's probably a big part of the reason that people get obsessed with, uh, with Hagia Sophia for all kinds of different reasons. It's always been a building that people have attributed a kind of divine quality to. So it's very common in the literature about Hagia Sophia for people to say things like, and here I mean as much the ancient and medieval as the modern literature, that this seems to be the place where divinity dwells, especially. So it's a very interesting phenomenon that you have a site. Um, one of my teachers, Robert Oesterhout, has written eloquently about this uh, building that was not wholly because of where it was built or something that happened on the site where it was built. So an example of that would be the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem, which is wholly because of the things that happened there and prior to the construction of the building. Nothing happened at Hagia Sophia, right? So what makes it holy is entirely the architecture of this structure. It's a, a case of the very successful construction by architecture of holiness. So that's really fascinating. And I think for that reason, it is easy to understand how it becomes contested in the same way in which other you know, sites widely perceived to be holy by different groups of believers 
also become contested spaces. So, of course, I was completely fascinated in the summer of 2020 with the more recent reactivation of this political charge around Hagia Sophia. And I was able to visit again most recently just this past summer. So this was the first time that I'd traveled again uh, since the, uh, the pandemic, uh, the first time that I'd left the U.S., and I didn't go immediately to Hagia Sophia, but I did manage in the course of that trip to get back to, uh, to Hagia Sophia and to experience it in its newest iteration. So I remain obsessed as I was the first time that I visited, and I expect fully to be obsessed for another couple of decades at least. Well, that's good to hear because I am also obsessed with it. I just finished writing my master's thesis all about it and its history and its iconography. So although since my program was very modern, I had to sort of bring in some modern aspect. So I had to bring in the, the political side. But as someone who's been to it first when it was still a museum and able to be taken in in that sort of sensory way as a museum and now going back, I also I took my very first trip to Istanbul and I was able to see it for the very first time also this past summer I went at the beginning of August and while I was still absolutely gobsmacked the minute I walked in and just sort of in love and staring up at the ceiling for 10 minutes straight or something I couldn't help but also think as amazing as it is as a as a mosque what would it have been like to see it as a museum so since you've seen both right how does it change the experience whether it was museum or mosque? It's a great question. It's one of a number of different factors. So it definitely changes the experience, but it's not the only thing that changes your experience from time to time. So the first couple of times that I visited, there was a lot of scaffolding up there. It was intensive work being done on the dome. So I had the experience of seeing it with scaffolding on one half of the dome, then scaffolding up to the other half of the dome, and then finally without the scaffolding. And that was as major a change in my perception of the interior, probably as uh, the more recent reopening of the building as a mosque. So to me, the biggest, by far the biggest difference was that there were many, many, many more people visiting this summer when I went than there had been at any previous time that I'd visited the building. And some of this has to do, obviously, with the expanded set of possibilities for the use of the building and for worship or for uh, tourism. And both of those being in many cases mixed, right? I think that there are many people who are as Muslims visiting you know, the building also as tourists and experiencing little something of both. I think in the sense in which it is an intrinsically uh, spiritual place that every visitor who has some kind of uh, sort of spiritual side to them also is visiting a little bit, uh, kind of a pilgrimage and a little bit as a stop on a, a, a tourist trip. So it has that kind of dual capacity, but that was much more apparent, obviously, um, on this visit than it had been previous when kinds, previously when kinds of uh, overt expressions of piety were discouraged by uh, the use of the building as a museum. So the biggest difference was the size of the crowd. And my uh, immediate reaction to that being quite claustrophobic, also sort of coming off of the pandemic and being very unaccustomed to being in large crowds of people was something close to panic. As I was going through the narthex, 
and trying to navigate basically a sea of people into the um, central mouse of the building. Um, and that was something that I had never experienced before. And I reacted very strongly against it <laughs> because of my own psychology and uh, yeah, the specifics of, of uh, becoming reaccustomed to travel um, post-COVID. But then I was with a group of friends, and then once we got inside, we were able to find a little corner where we could sit down. This was also interesting because that was something that uh, you could never do previously in the museum iteration. Obviously, you can't lie down and take a nap, but there are carpets on the floor, and, and so you can sit as you would in a mosque and look around you so you can engage also uh, in a different manner with the building because of that. Those are the first two major kinds of distinctions that leapt out to me. Obviously, another major, major difference is not being able to go up to the gallery. Now, there's no particular reason. This doesn't have anything to do with it being a mosque, right? It could be a mosque and you could go up to the gallery. It was a little bit disappointing for me also showing friends who had never been there, uh, the building for the first time, not to be able to take them up to the gallery. So there's a whole other experience of the building from that upper story, as opposed to when you're standing on the floor of the Naos. So there were a whole set of differences and um, some of them have to do specifically with the change in function, but some of them are really, all of them have to do, I think, more so with the different approach to heritage management. And those two things, I think, have to be distinguished from each other, right? It would be possible to run the building as a mosque in a very different way than is the sort of the, the current iteration. But of course, this is still a young phenomenon, Hagia Sophia Mosque Part Two, And so I have every expectation that that will also continue to change. So if you or I were to go back next summer or the summer after, it may well still be a mosque, but it probably would be, again, a totally different experience from the experience of the summer 2020. And I think that's the most important point to make in some ways about this whole conversation. It's, you know, symbolically very important to a number of people, whether Hagia Sophia is officially, if you like, a church or a mosque or a museum. But there's a sense in which that kind of category shift has a relatively small role to play in the experience that individuals have of the building. So with my colleague, uh, Emily Neumeyer, who's an architectural historian, and historian of Ottoman architecture at Temple, we organized a conference several years back uh, that was at Ohio State University, which was about Hagia Sophia in the long 19th century, basically from the mid 18th to the early 20th century, which is a relatively understudied period in the history of the building, in part because people had thought, well, you know, Hagia Sophia became a mosque and it stayed a mosque <laughs> until the decree of the Republic of Turkey that you know, established it as a museum. So there was perhaps a sense in which nothing really had changed. But when you start to look at the history of these just uh, shy of two centuries between the mid 18th and early 20th century, in fact, an extraordinary amount changed about the decoration of the building, about its uses, about its role in politics. And there's a number of different stories to be told that have nothing to do with the category shift. And so I think the challenge of studying Hagia Sophia now is both to understand the incredible interest in and in some cases, reaction to the category shift, 
but also to be able to look beyond that and to try and understand the things that persist despite the category shift or the changes that take place within a particular category in the use of the building. Yeah, well, as you were saying all that, it was I was just thinking back to my own experience of, of visiting. And it is interesting because my entire master's thesis is basically using the building itself as a case study, but it, it is kind of exploring the impact of religio-political iconoclasm and just the effects of religion on cultural heritage. So I spent my entire summer researching and writing, so it's very interesting. Yeah, I mean, my experience visiting the site was very shaped by knowing, oh, well, yes, it is an incredibly mismanaged site because right now the Turkish Bureau for Religious Affairs or the DNET, it does, it runs the mosque because it runs all active mosques in Turkey. And I remember one of the biggest points of contention was, well, if it's not going to be a museum, the one of the effects is well you're not you're not going to run it like a proper museum cultural heritage site so it's going to suffer so that's the one big thing i kind of had in my mind as i was visiting and i tried not to let it bother me i just enjoyed what i could i think something that was very striking for me was looking up sort of at the the domes and the pendentives and um, seeing the seraphim angels up top and how only one of the faces has been uncovered and people were saying and you know whispering in corners oh do you think that they'll cover the face of this last angel because you can't show anything anymore will they leave it open and so it'll be interesting to watch whether that angel face is covered in the next few years or whether they hopefully fingers crossed they leave it but I'm not really sure what they'll do but yeah, I'm I'm very interested in how the management of it will change and how the experience will change based on what they decide to do with it. And obviously politically it is an incredibly contentious dispute. So um it'll be very interesting to see going forward. But one thing that I also got to learn when I was in the building on the sort of lighter side, if there is one of the building's usage, is I learned it was a filming location for several different films. And I'm just kind of curious, have you seen any of the films where it's been featured and do you have a favorite? What a good question. Hagia Sophia in film. Um, So when I think Istanbul in film... There's one James Bond film in particular that comes to mind, and I want to say that's from Russia with Love, which is largely set in Istanbul, or am I misremembering? That, though, I don't remember Hagia Sophia featuring in the interior, right? Uh, I remember seeing it from the outside, I think, in an establishing shot, but I don't remember any interior shots in Hagia Sophia, so then I'd have to keep thinking about the same period. Topkapta is another great thriller that's set in Istanbul, filmed in Istanbul on site. But that mostly takes place in Topkapta Palace. And again, I'm not sure I remember the interior of Hagia Sophia specifically featuring in that building. So I'm coming up short. I'm drawing a blank. I can't think of a single film in which the interior, the the action has actually taken place within Hagia Sophia. So please enlighten me. Give me some viewing tips for places where I can see uh, different periods in the interior of Hagia Sophia. 
I know. Th- so you were right on the James Bond. I don't remember which one it was because I was half paying attention. I was very distracted again by just the interior. But the guide was saying that, yes, there was a James Bond filmed inside because okay. and one of the corners toward the back, sort okay. of toward the Imperial Gate, there's like a, a big jug kind of just sort of yeah. standing there. Yep. And they say, okay, go stand here. And you say, oh, wh- why am I going to go stand right next to this jug? It's sort of random. And they say, well, that's exactly where James Bond stood. And so then they show you a clip from the film. And oh. then you see him like walk right next to this jug. And they go, see, here, look. So they pause it. And then they show you where he was standing and then where they just took the picture. And you just go, oh, I can say I was standing where James Bond was. So there's that one. And then... I think I got a glimpse of the interior in one of the domes or one of the one of the glyphs on the walls in the 2012 Argo by Ben Affleck before he flies into Iran when he meets somebody. I think it's like one of these here. Let me give you the fake passports. But I I just remember I think they were standing up in one of the galleries and I know the focus was on the actors themselves, but I think just looking past them where they were, I think it was Aya Sophia. I want to say it was. I have to go back and watch it now because I really don't remember. But I'm, I'm sure it was because it, it, it was it stood out to me. And I'd like to think I'm pretty perceptive, but I don't pay attention to like the grainy background of where two people are interacting in a very short scene of like three minutes. But it's just such a striking interior that I think I was like, oh, oh, I know where that is. Yes, that's that's Aya Sophia. So, yeah. And then I know that one of the Taken films, I think it was the second one that was filmed in Istanbul. I think you see a lot of exterior shots of it. I, and I remember there's like a really fun chase sequence on the rooftops of Istanbul. And, and I think you see one of the actors running and you're like, oh, look, it's Aya Sophia. And then nothing. But well, I do remember though, Lexi, because I know that you're interested in gaming. There's the Assassin's Creed yes. that plays out in the interior of yes. Hagia Sophia. So I've not played it, but I've seen recordings of that on YouTube. Mm-hmm. And that is to me one of the more impressive renditions of the interior of Hagia Sophia that I've ever seen. I mean, not filmed, obviously, but all that much more impressive, I think, for that, that it's been recreated in the game world in what looked like an incredibly meticulous and sort of archaeological fashion. And so that, as I recall, gives you the opportunity to actually climb up to the dome. I think that's the challenge when you're in the interior of the space is that you need to climb up to the dome to collect something or something like that. So that allows you to do something that you would never be able to do under any kind of heritage management uh, regime that's to actually scale the walls of Hagia Sophia. So that's pretty exciting. That is true. That is true. I was going to mention the game. I I hope more games honestly decide to be set in Istanbul because I just remember seeing that and, and that's a very old game. I think the first Assassin's Creed that took place there, I think that came out in like 2012 or something. So I would love to see with like updated technology. I mean, when it came out and for what it was, it was incredible. But seeing some of the newer games and what they've done, oh, I would love to see it done now with 
technology in 2022 and but there's nothing quite like the thrill of of scaling the domes and the walls i mean one of the other games you can scale the duomo and you're like this is the coolest thing and then it ended up being a major problem because then you had the ancient greece assassin's creed which i played the hell out of and then the entire year that i was living in greece i just kept looking at every single either monument or site thinking Oh, I ran up there. Could I do this in real life? No, I can't. The uh, the Aqua Corinth was definitely one where I remember I just scaled straight up and then I get to the real thing and I go, wow, okay, there's no way. And there's no way humanly possible that I could just zoop right up unless I was the world's best free climber. But even then, I don't think I would have been very successful. So anyway... There are three questions that I tend to ask every guest to sort of close out the interview period. The first being, when you were an undergrad or a grad student, did you attend office hours? Definitely when I was a grad student. I was slightly more indifferent as an undergraduate student, at least for the first couple of years that I was in college. So I think at that point, I only attended office hours when I was begging for an extension or I had an excuse for something that I wanted to share in person. So I probably always attended office hours, but at some point, my reasons for doing so changed from requesting some kind of extension or exemption to uh, actually wanting to learn more about the things that we've been discussing in class. Okay. And so, okay, we can go off of your grad experience, if you would like. Do you have a favorite conversation or memory from going to talk to a professor? Oh, wow. I have vivid memories of my dissertation advisor's office. Uh, my dissertation advisor and mentor is Dale Kinney, who taught at Bryn Mawr. She's retired now. And she was also the dean of uh, the College of Arts and Sciences at that time, the graduate school, rather, at Bryn Mawr. So she had a fancy dean's office, but she always wanted to meet in her research office, which was a, a tiny carol and in the library, uh, archaeology and classics library there, Carpenter Library at Bryn Mawr. And it was extraordinary to me because even though I would say it was slightly larger than a broom closet, she always had precisely the book at hand that was germane to a conversation or a topic that had spontaneously come up unplanned. So it was this kind of magic place where there were, if not answers to all questions, then at the very least, the resources that would be necessary to continue to pursue. She also had bibliographies and various files. All of this was printed out. I don't remember her ever consulting her computer when we were meeting in her office, but it was somehow always precisely what was needed. And of course, we had, you know, endless uh, conversations. I did independent studies with her. And then later on, when I was working on my preliminary exams and my dissertation, I was, it was frequently in there. But I wouldn't say it was one particular moment or memory that stands out as much as the preternatural wealth of print matter that somehow resided within this very small space. 
well, that is a very handy talent. I would love to just sort of be talking about something. And then if I wanted to know something, I would just go bring. I mean, it's like, it, I don't want to say it's telekinesis, but um, that is a very cool trick that I would like to learn. And so the, the last question then I have is now that you're on the other side and you are a professor yourself, if you had to just sort of do an elevator pitch for why students should go to office hours, what would you say? First of all, I think students might not be aware, but faculty, and I think I can speak for all of us, but I certainly speak for myself, want students to come to office hours. I think that sometimes students perceive it as an imposition if they come. And often you can tell when they come to the door, they're almost apologizing for being there. They, I don't know, imagine that we must have these incredibly important things that are occupying all of our time. But I am thrilled when somebody comes to office hours and it's regardless of whether they want to talk about a particular assignment or they want to ask about you know, different forms of study, the possibility of majoring, the possibility of pursuing some kind of further study, whether it's just something that they found interesting that was mentioned in the class, whether they need advice about something entirely different, um, you know, about changing their enrollment from one college to another or something like this. It's always a pleasure to engage with students about the things that you can help them with. And in particular, research and uh, academics, obviously, but that, and that also includes just more generally, you know, success at university. I think you'll find that any professor that you go and you ask even just what are the two or three things that I should do to be the best possible student? They would be happy to engage on that absolutely most general level. And also, if you wanted to ask, tell me more about the films in which the interior of Hagia Sophia has appeared, something very, very specific, they'll be equally uh, eager to engage on that topic. So it's just an opportunity to get input from a whole host of different people who are, you have to imagine, literally sitting around in our offices waiting for people to come and bother us with interesting questions. Well, I couldn't agree more. So there you have it, folks. Go to office hours. I cannot reiterate this enough. And I do every two weeks on the show, which is why it's called Ancient Office Hours. So at the end of the show, I have every guest read Percy Shelley's beautiful poem, Ozymandias. So if you would be able to just read it and then give us your thoughts on whether you like this poem and why or why not you think it's important. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ozymandias. I met a traveler from an antique land who said... Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand, half-sunk a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal, these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my work, see mighty, in despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. It's a great poem. I have to admit that having done my homework for this podcast, I went back and looked at it again this morning because I knew that you would ask for a rendition. And I was really happy for the um, push to do that because a couple of things struck me this time that hadn't done or that weren't in my memory of it. And the first is this weird first-person introduction, and then the I who speaks at the beginning completely disappears after the first line and a half, and the rest that you get is an extended quote. It's put in quotes in this version that I'm looking at here, and it even has an ellipsis. So between two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert, and what follows near them on the sand, there's an ellipsis as if something has been cut or left out. So actually, this is a report about a fragment, about a ruin that is itself kind of fragmented. There's something missing in the middle of it. So I find that super fascinating. The other thing that I find really puzzling and I'd like to think more about is this line in the middle about the sculptor. Sculptor well read those, well those passions read which yet survived, stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. That's pretty cryptic to me. 
But if I understand it correctly, the hand that mocked them is the sculptor's hand. The heart that fed is even more puzzling to me. So I'll set that aside. But the notion that a sculptor of a ruler in antiquity might be secretly mocking the monarch that they're depicting is, I think, really suggestive and appealing. And I didn't remember it being there in the poem. So thank you for the opportunity to go back and to revisit that. Oh, you're welcome. Well, there's one final question that I'm also interested to hear in addition to your to your lovely opinion on the poem itself which is if we do consider that this poem is it's confusing but also it sounds as if it's a memento mori or something of the sort if we consider this poem and then we consider our modern society do we have a modern Ozymandias like what is something that we also sort of puzzle at that we think is amazing or great or lasting and realistically is it going to stand the test of time like this poem or not really oh gosh what a good question we have many ruins around us obviously there's many ruins of empire and we don't have to travel to find them although it's interesting in this case that the report has to come from a traveler I'm fascinated by the uh, sort of remains of coastal defenses in the Northeast of the US, where there's all of these parks that were constructed for coastal defense. We've got like bunkers and gunwales and so forth built in concrete, um, sort of mid 20th century. This is one example I'm thinking of that's in Rhode Island, but I've been to a couple of times, but I'm sure there's plenty more of those and they get usually converted into parks, so they get opened up to the public, and it's too expensive to dismantle the concrete installation, so you leave them there, and people use them as opportunities to tag, you know, graffiti artists go and they decorate them, people definitely use them for skating, so they begin to assume a whole other different set of functions that are totally different from this original uh, function for defense. So I think that's the first thing that comes to mind in my more immediate orbit is um, concrete coastal defenses are our Ozymandias. Well, that's one I definitely haven't heard before, and I've heard a lot of different ideas, so I really, really like this one. And I'm sorry we didn't have enough time to discuss this interest in land masses. I know that I wanted to try to get to it, but that just means that I'll have to have you on again so you can illuminate us about land masses. I mean, it's been such a pleasure to, to speak with you today, and and really, I I appreciate it so much. And before before we, we, we go here... Is there anywhere people can follow your work? Well, that's a good question. I have a, a professional website, which is bunyaminanderson.com. Bunyamin is spelled B-U-N-Y-A-M-I-N, and Anderson is spelled A-N-D-E-R-S-O-N, but it's all written as one word, bunyaminanderson.com. Perfect. Well, we will put that in the show notes so people can go and find it and learn all about you and your research and thank you again for joining me today. Thank you, Lexi. It's been a great pleasure. Trireme Transit is now departing ancient office hours. Next stop is Present Ponderings.